Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the morning of Tuesday, May 22nd. On today's show, we'll talk about a privacy invasion that's arguably scarier than the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and why it's not getting nearly the same amount of attention. It involves your cell phone and its ability to track where you are at all times. We'll also be joined by Luther Lowe, the senior public policy wonk at Yelp, a company that has had some major beef with Google's allegedly anti-competitive behavior. We'll talk about how Google got so big and whether or not federal regulators might start taking action. All right. Another show approaching the end of May. Will, how's it going? It's going well. How's life in Oakland, April? It's fine. <laughs> it's always fine. Um, but uh, but there's some big news on the tech scene this week. No surprises if there ever isn't. Uh, GDPR, which is the European privacy regulations, go into effect on May 25th. Uh, we'll expand GDPR for us. <laughs> it's general data protection, <laughs> protection rule regulation. regulation. Okay. There we go. Let's just let's just keep it to GDPR. It's a lot easier. But yeah, if you've been seeing a lot of uh, your your various online services that you subscribe to this week, emailing you to say, "Hey, we've updated our privacy policy." Well, there's a reason for that. It's because everybody's getting ready to comply with the EU's big new set of privacy rules, and even though it applies to the EU. You, it uh, definitely affects all the big American tech companies that do business over there. And so in a lot of cases, they're going ahead and changing their policies for customers in the United States, too. Right. And these are some sweeping privacy regulations, right? They're going to give users control over all kinds of things about, like, knowing what companies collect on them, uh, you know, in some cases, asking them to stop or opt out to get the data back. Um, it's a very comprehensive piece of or kind of suite of privacy rules that, you know, potentially could provide the scaffolding for us to get the same thing here in the United States. We're going to go much deeper into that next week. But as Will said, you've probably been getting a few updates to privacy policies, letting you know that they have uh, these Internet companies have buckled down and changed the way they do things in advance of and and in respect to uh, the new European privacy rules. So please listen next week for more of a deep dive on that. But let's keep on the the kind of data privacy beat here. Will, you wrote a piece this week about a privacy issue involving the major wireless carriers and the data they collect on our location at all times. We know the carriers can track our location because they can see what a cell tower sees, and we're close to cell towers all the time. Um, And they do this for a lot of reasons, like trying to provide better service, of course. We need cell towers to get cell service. <laughs> they um, 
They also help authorities, like law enforcement requests, uh, kind of respond to the right location of a 911 call. Um, They also give data to law enforcement, uh, perhaps, you know, without a warrant sometimes. Uh, But this location tracking has suddenly become, um, or not suddenly, but it's, it's definitely become more of a privacy scandal in recent days. Will, can you explain what's happened? Yeah. So as you pointed out, it's not new that the, that your wireless carrier is tracking your location at all times. What is new is this series of revelations that have come out in the past two weeks about how the wireless carriers handle that tracking data and who gets access to it. So this the, the story that sort of broke this open was in the New York Times uh, last week. Uh, the headline was, Service Meant to Monitor Inmates' Calls Could Track You Too. This is about a company called Securus that helps prisons um, keep tabs, as, as the headline suggests, keep tabs on the inmates' cell phone use. In a lot of cases, cell phone use is prohibited so they can see if somebody is using a uh, cell phone in the prison without authorization. Uh, but it turned out that in at least one case, and, and who knows, there may be more, a, a sheriff in Missouri was using this service that Securus provides to look up the location of other people, people who are not inmates. He was just using it to see, you know, where were his colleagues at a given moment. Uh, He looked up private citizens' locations. So he's now facing charges for that. But the story got bigger from there when it turned out that uh, Securus had actually been hacked. And so now the credentials of all these prison officials and law enforcement officers to get access to the cell phone location data is, is presumably in... Uh, the wrong hands or is it hands that it that it wasn't supposed to be in uh, it's only the, the scandal is only widened from there there's now reporting about an intermediary company called location smart uh, they're the ones that, that gave Securus this detailed location data. They actually bring in data from all the different major carriers, bring it together and triangulate your location even more precisely than your phone company could on its own. Uh, location Smart had a little demo feature on their website, and a, a, a researcher at Carnegie Mellon figured out he could look up the location of anybody who has a cell phone at any time, uh, and just with a, a few tweaks. Um, and so basically, that information was just out there. So if you were not at home, uh, somebody could find out you know, that you weren't at home. Or if, you, uh, if your kid was at home by themselves, you know, maybe somebody could find that out. It's very damaging and scary information. And it was just sort of hanging out there for, for anybody to grab. Right. You made a comparison in your piece to Cambridge Analytica. Um, This is a different issue in many, many ways. For one, being that, you know, cell phones are without a doubt a utility that, you know, people really need. But uh, you do see some similarity here. Why do you argue that this location smart story should be a bigger privacy scandal than the Facebook one? I'm not sure I'm with you on that. I think that they're they're very different and they have very different policy implications, but it's definitely something that people should be, you know, more angry and disturbed by. Why, why do you draw this comparison here? Yeah. So, I mean, clearly there, there are different issues. I mean, what Facebook was doing was, it was allowing developers, as we've talked about a lot on the show, is allowing developers to get access to stuff like your Facebook profile information and your Facebook likes. It was just kind of handing out this info willy-nilly to anybody who built an app on Facebook's platform. So inevitably, you know, of course, somebody was going to use that information in a way that it wasn't intended. And that's how we got the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, but there is a parallel here in that, the you know, the wireless company 
experience. It's about how they handle the data that they collect from you. You know, we entrust the wireless companies to keep track of our location at all times, and we actually don't have a choice. There's no opting out here. You have to do that. It's part of the part of the 911 location system, among other things. And it's about how they have you know, failed to really treat that data with the kind of care that we we should expect of them. And, you know, so they're also allowing third parties, you know, shady companies that may have all kinds of different motivations to to use that data, uh, probably in ways that we that were never intended, uh, and that, that we never expected. So I, I think that's the parallel. And the reason that I argue that the, the location smart or the, the wireless carrier story should be bigger in some ways is at least Facebook actually closed this loophole back in 2015. Facebook still has all sorts of privacy problems and loopholes, but, the, but it stopped handing out this information back in 2015. The wireless carriers, as far as we know, are still doing it. There has not been a ton of outrage about it, and none of them have pledged to stop working with these partners like Location Smart and Securus that have proven they're not keeping this data safe. Yeah. It's not just these partners. I mean, like, you know, intense data collection has been a part of the culture of uh, not just wireless carriers, but we have to realize these are also just internet companies, right? These are these utility companies for a very, very, very long time. I mean, in 2005, it was Mark Klein, who was a whistleblower that, uh, you know, ta- who was used to work for AT&T. Uh, who blew the whistle saying that uh, that they had a secret room with the NSA in their facilities that was sitting on the wire, you know, collecting up all of this data with a fiber optic cable. And uh, and a fiber optic splitter doesn't work in such a way that they can just take off bits of data that they have a warrant for. It works in such a way that they make an exact copy of all of that data. And they've been doing this for a very, very long time. So whether it comes to our cell phones and beaming location information like that, which, you know, we also know that at least the federal government has had access to for some time, like programs like Bull Run, which was an NSA program that was revealed around the Snowden time. You know, now we're resurfacing privacy concerns with these companies uh, and, and uh, now they're affiliate and they're partner companies. Um, it's true that, uh, that that these services that we absolutely rely on to stay safe, like I do not feel safe when my phone is dead and I'm in a part, of, a part of the country that I'm not familiar with and I can't hail a cab in some way or call for help and I have to, you know, walk a few miles. Like I need a phone right now. And um, a lot of people feel the same way. So, uh, so you know, it's 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 true that this is a huge issue, and uh, and for some reason we're not they're not we're not seeing the public outrage around it. I think it's because the user interface isn't as pretty. Uh, all right, that's a theory. I have my own theory. Yeah, Maybe what is that? This, yeah, but... and my theory is quite shallow, by the way. It's just that people <laughs> like Facebook and they use it a lot. I don't think people have the same relationship with their wireless carrier. Yeah, I guess I don't. I don't hear people going around talking about how much they love uh, Verizon or, or Sprint very often. But to me, it's that the Cambridge Analytica story really got legs not because of the privacy dimension, but because of the political dimension. I think it was the fact that it was, you know, Facebook data was being used to help elect Donald Trump. I think that's what really got people outraged about it. That's what took it from being a, a tech privacy story, which we have all the time and which generally doesn't make a huge dent on the national consciousness and turned it into a political story. It was a story that was on cable news every night. You know, you had Mark Zuckerberg dragooned into coming before Congress. And, and today, actually, as we're recording this, he's now testifying to Parliament in the UK. We just haven't seen anything like that furor about- Or in, about, the, e, in the EU. You're right. Sorry. In the, in the thank, No, thanks for that correction. But we just haven't seen anything like that furor with this uh, wireless location tracking issue. And I think to me, it was just a disappointing reminder that most people really don't care 
that much about their their data privacy or as much as we tech wonks think that they should care about it, even in this post Cambridge Analytica landscape. I don't know if it's that people don't care. I think that it's it's up to the wonks and the uh, the the journalists to frame it in such a way that it makes sense. You know, Trump has affected people's lives in very very concrete ways, and uh, and people are trying to understand, you know how this happened. Uh, he's definitely put in policies that have worked against the best interest of many Americans. And it's been very, very disturbing to watch those play out for many people, legitimately so. There is a kind of a loss for for what to do and, and how we got there and what we can do to change to make sure that something didn't happen again. Clearly, I, I have an opinion here about about uh, President Trump. Uh, but regardless of, of that, I think that uh, we need to do a better job, perhaps, as uh, experts and journalists at, uh, at delineating why the uh, the issue with our wireless carriers that you're right might be less cloaked in in political concern um, is is incredibly disconcerting um, and we need to really find out the real world harms that could come of this and not just say oh your dad is on the loose but actually say oh your dad is on the loose and this is what that means and this is how people's lives are affected by it so you know we need to take that extra beat that extra step I don't want to say that people don't care <laughs> but that's just what I always say <laughs> so. no that's a great point. And and it is, I do think there is a difference where you can see the demonstrated real world harm if you don't like Donald Trump yeah. uh, from Donald Trump's election. So even though the, t- the, t- the connection, I believe, between Cambridge Analytica and Trump's election may have been quite tenuous, it's still something that people can latch on to uh, and get upset about. Uh, one person that's really trying to do what you're talking about, April, and, and uh, sort of bring home to the average American what the dangers are here is Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. Um, and he's been actually in the lead on this story. I think it was his office that tipped off the New York Times yes. to look into what Securus was doing. And so he's really pushing the FCC now to act on this. He talks about stuff like, oh, a hacker could have used this to know when you're in the house, they would know when to rob it. A predator could have tracked your child's cell phone to know when they're alone. But you're probably right. The reality is until bad stuff has actually happened, and we're talking about in concrete rather than hypotheticals, it will be hard for most people to internalize what the issue is here. Or maybe it has happened until we, we, we do the digging to find out what that is. No, Wyden's a, a good example of a lawmaker that can push an issue forward. Look, they're capable of doing that. <laughs> Let's see what will happen now post-hearings with uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg. It's true that that did get a lot of attention, but the, but the other fact of the matter is, is that it is a big deal. This is a massive part of the economy. These are major companies and they've grown wildly and they haven't acted responsibly. But now it's time to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Yelp's Luther Lowe. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Luther Lowe. He's Senior Vice President for Public Policy at Yelp, the popular online search and business review site that helps you find things like the best sushi in Topeka or the best nail salon in Billings. He's also something of a self-styled expert on Google and the antitrust issues that have been raised by its dominance of search and search advertising. He was involved in an interesting New York Times profile last year called Inside Yelp's Six-Year Grudge Against Google. That grudge may not be new, but there is renewed attention on Google, its size, and whether it needs to be somehow broken up or chastised by the federal government for its anti-competitive behavior. I should say its alleged anti-competitive behavior. There was a 60 Minutes segment this past weekend called How Did Google Get So Big that essentially made the case that Google is too big. And on Monday, we had Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin responding to a question about that 60 Minutes segment, saying you have to look at the power they have, they being Google, and it's something the Justice Department, I hope, does take a serious look at. So the question that I want to ask you first, Luther, is why does Yelp employ someone who's an expert on Google? Or why did you have to become an expert on Google and antitrust in order to work for a business review site? (laughs) Well, hello, Will and April. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, yeah, great to have you. You know, I, I think I've been at Yelp now for 10 years and sort of have seen the evolution of the complicated relationship that Google has with the open internet. And in our case, we're a website on the internet and uh, we publish helpful content for consumers. Local search actually turns out is the most common thing people do on Google. It's about 40% of all searching uh, searches with some type of intent, such as pediatrician in Washington, D.C., or you know, bicycle repair shop in Copenhagen. And when you perform a search like that, uh, whereas in 2005, Google would send you off to the 10 blue links, uh, today Google is sort of intent on answering users' questions. And, and sometimes that's helpful, like if I'm looking for 2 plus 2, seeing a 4 on the screen, or if I'm looking for... Uh, weather or sports scores, all of these kind of fact-based examples, that's that's really handy. But Google has uh, begun to sort of clone the features of services like TripAdvisor and Yelp and siphon folks into its own content. And the reason that trigger, triggers antitrust uh, questions, to, to answer your question, is that people rely on Google as a general search engine, uh, but its behavior here is uh, an entry into an adjacent market of local search. And so not unlike the case that we saw literally 20 years ago was the anniversary of U.S. versus Microsoft. The issues there were uh, Windows, which had dominance in the operating systems, was using its dominance to lever into the browser space and thus killing Netscape. And so that that's the kind of antitrust theory that we're talking about. 
I also just wanted to clarify for people who aren't familiar, Luther's using this phrase, 10 blue links. Uh, I think that's sort of like an, an industry byword for what the old Google used to be, the idea that you would search for something and you'd get 10, a list of 10 links out to different websites that might answer your question. Whereas the new Google, uh, the Google in the age of, of voice assistants and, and mobile phones, often tries to just answer your question directly right there in the search results. So Yelp is the Netscape here, and Google is the Microsoft in this in this analogy, and they're trying to crush you by by integrating the same answers into their search results that you're trying to give people on Yelp.com. I would say it's even more pernicious. Uh, you know, when people come to Google and do a search for dentist in San Diego, uh, they are habituated to assume that the stuff at the top of the page is the very best and it's gone through the same meritocratic processes that Google used to kind of provide for, you know, putting surfacing information on page one, but that's actually not the case. Google doesn't even index its own text in its organic algorithm. And so basically uh, users are sort of led to believe that this is the best stuff, but actually there's stuff from ZocDoc and RateMDs and health grades. And yes, sometimes Yelp, sometimes not, uh, that would much better serve that consumer's question. So I do think that the analogy is fair, although I think that the empirical evidence of direct consumer harm is much more clear here. You know, it's true. When I when I search for something on Google now, I see the Wikipedia entry, just the snippet of it on Google, and I end up not leaving the Google search page. Or if I look for a recipe for like how to make a Manhattan or something on Google, like a drink, you know, I'll see that that search result on the Google page and it won't take me to this recipe site that might have, you know, a lot of other recipes and input from other people on it. Um, it's all kind of getting aggregated on Google now. So I, I have, you know, very much noticed that uh, Google's trying to become kind of this one-stop shop for all questions on the internet, even if it's not really their expertise. You know, that that said, there has been a tremendous amount of scrutiny recently on Facebook and not Google. And not that that's not warranted, right? I mean, Cambridge Analytica, that scandal has definitely, like, centered around Facebook, uh, you know, Russian interference in the election. Google was roped into a lot of those questions in Congress and and, and was definitely a part of that. But, you know, the most kind of visceral and, and uh, you know, kind of surreal ads and things like that were Facebook ads. But still, Google is a larger company than Facebook or Alphabet, rather. And, you know, they're in the business of collecting a tremendous amount of data on people you know, have you been thinking about how to bring Google into this conversation or has Google gotten an unfair pass here, uh, you know, as this, there's been this kind of great kind of social media or Internet platform reckoning in the past you know, year or so? You're right that Facebook is it's just kind of been wall to wall Zuckerberg, uh, Zuckerberg Cambridge Analytica coverage. I would say that Google has been ensnared in that somewhat. I mean, they've got YouTube, obviously, and um, right. With revenue shares uh, occurring on YouTube, you know, uh, third-party estimates showed that uh, if you include uh, RT, Google was paying out millions and millions of dollars to Russia-affiliated entities in the workup to the 2016 election. And that, you know, presumably that is more offensive. G- giving money to the Russians is, uh, should be more offensive than giving money to Facebook uh, to kind of broadcast or propagandize a message. Right. And, you know, YouTube and, and you know, by way of that alphabet, Google did have liaisons in both major candidates' office just as, as Facebook did. Exactly. It seems like basically all the criticism that's been levied at Facebook 
could be equally applicable to Google in terms of the amount of uh, personal information that's uh, caught up and the amount of uh, sort of they've had their their share of sort of privacy scandals. And so uh, if you recall the Street View incident, there was also like a rogue engineer reading kids' emails uh, like eight years ago. And so it just wasn't at a time when we were so focused uh, as consumers on uh, the issues, I guess. Privacy aside, Google is very, very, very big. And and I think one of the things that's hard for people to to kind of grok with with Alphabet and or at least thinking about it as a, a company, um, it because it's it's so segmented is how big it is. And maybe we could step back for a second and, and you can kind of help us understand the scope of the size of this company and, and also, you know, how it was able to get so big. Uh, because it seems like it just keeps growing and uh, as you said, it, it, its competitors like like Yelp, for example, um, you know, feel like it's it's constantly kind of edging in on other companies' territory. How did, how was it able to get so big? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in fairness, Google uh, built a really great technology, originally referred to as PageRank, which right. uh, organized the web in a way that had not been done before. And there's this really great uh, 2004 interview with Larry Page he did with Playboy magazine that lives out on various blogs still. So you can just type in 2004 Larry Page Playboy. And it it (laughs) is an amazing interview. Basically, Page throws shade on portals and the portals of the time were AOL and Yahoo. And he says, you know, our strategy is the opposite. We want to get you on Google and off of Google as quickly as possible. And so that really was the engine that powered the growth of the open web and and led to services like Yelp uh, to emerge and and create all this great content. And then somewhere along the way, I, I think maybe the combination of pressure from the form factor shifts with the rise of smartphones, plus, you know, this notion of time spent on site as an important metric advertisers were looking at, and that, you know, pressure coming from Facebook in that form, as well as Wall Street, it led to Google sort of rejiggering in such a way that uh, they kind of backed themselves into this walled garden position and began looking at their search engine result pages and saying, okay, people are, you know, 40% of our searches are people looking for uh, local businesses. Let's clone Yelp. Let's clone TripAdvisor and bake those features into the top of our page and send them to our reviews, even though they may not uh, merit the same type of ranking. And you're seeing that across a wide variety of verticals. And that's just search. I mean, that doesn't, of course, get into any of the other acquisitions that have been kind of greenlighted by our antitrust enforcers, uh, such as AdMob or Waze. Uh, and so over time, if you've got effectively an ATM that that never stops spitting out money in the form of uh, your search business, and you can uh, use that to go out and buy companies when they're in this very tiny state, and you have all this data from Android and ultimately the ultimate database, which is the the database of intentions, people's uh, search queries, and you have Google Analytics, you kind of run the table in terms of the ability to capture innovation in the crib, bring it in-house, and uh, govern it its outcome and really govern the the how the internet is shaped. All right. So at this point, we don't have anyone from Google on this show, but I did talk to some Google representatives beforehand um, to try to give a a balanced picture to our listeners to the extent possible. 
Google's response to the claim that it is behaving anti-competitively is, look, yes, it's true that when you search for best sushi restaurants in San Francisco, the top results you see will be from Google. Those are those are Google's own ads. Um, they say, but but look, we're not doing that to punish Yelp. We understand Yelp may feel like we're trying to punish them, but actually, we're just trying to give the best search results we can to the people who use Google. And what we've found is that people actually like having those results uh, directly on Google at the top of our listings. The Google points out that it does it did offer Yelp the chance for Google to scrape Yelp and use its listings and draw from its listings, draw snippets and put those near or at the top of its search results and and Yelp has declined to do that. So what Google was it was able to successfully convince the FTC of in the United States several years back was that yeah, you know, competitors may be hurt by this in some ways, but that's not the point of what we're doing here. What we're doing here is just trying to get customers the 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 information in the most quick and direct way possible. And it's not always the case that the best way to do that is to give links to 10 other sites where they have to then go and do the restaurant search again elsewhere. Well, this is such a great question because it gets to the heart of both the antitrust and just the whole, the whole beef. And I think it, it's sort of like Google saying, stop hitting yourself, Yelp. We we scraped you and you didn't like it, so we stopped and, and now we provide <laughs> this experience. So... There are three buckets of information Google draws from to power the search engine result page. One of them is advertisements. One of them is the sort of meritocratic-based organic 10 blue links. And the final bucket is answers. And so let's just set ads for us uh, aside for a second and talk about uh, the relationship of answers and 10 blue links. So some answers are clear and straightforward and are not controversial. And this was really what Google kind of hid behind in, in its arguments before the FTC between 2011 and 2013, saying, gosh, FTC, you know, one day we were showing 10 blue links to everybody, and then uh, we decided to put fours on the screen when people typed in two plus two. We, we A-B tested that, people were happier, and yeah, the guy who runs calculator.com is, uh, is bummed out, but at the end of the day, you know, now billions of users benefit from having this calculator right on the page. I mean, who can argue with that? The problem with that logic is that you, it doesn't apply when somebody's doing a search for something as subjective and important as a, a pediatrician in Manhattan. And the, the sort of deception here that Google is playing is that there's no reason that, that the businesses being pinned to the map uh, can't come from an interoperable experience. So it seems like Google is really taking the work of other folks and putting it on their site, whether it's Yelp in the case of your company and it comes to like photos that people have taken potentially or information about a company. And, you know, Google might push back against this, but it seems like it's it's been proven in some cases. And I want you to get into that momentarily, uh, whether it comes to Wikipedia, which is, you know, volunteer offered stuff, if it's recipes like the example I gave before, and it's putting that on its site. Um, and Google is really the only way. I mean, it's the only search engine I use. I think it's the search engine that most, the vast majority of people depend on, it's kind of our way to learn about anything online. You know, if I want to find anything, I go to Google, right? I, I don't really go anywhere else. Um, and with that gatekeeping power, they're also kind of stopping people at the gate and saying, well, here's what you wanted. There's no need to go any further. I'd love it if you could kind of walk us through a little bit about how, at least in the relationship to Yelp, which I know um, you guys have, have had um, some challenges on, you know, how how Google is takes the stuff that, that your users have submitted and, and has maybe turned that into a Google product. What Google, I think, 
really needs to, to reckon with here is this notion that you can uh, design answer boxes which uh, provide conspicuous click-through and traffic to the web. It doesn't have to be this this trade-off. And that applies in the same way uh, to Yelp. I mean, that's this principle Yelp's been, been arguing for for a few years now. Uh, but it also applies to Wikipedia. And I think if you look at 2007 was the year that Wikipedia contribution began to decline. And I firmly believe it's because uh, as it relates to sort of long form user generated content ecosystems, be they Wikipedia or Yelp or TripAdvisor, they follow along what's known as the 1990 rule of participation inequality. Most people don't write Yelp reviews. About 1% of us are super users who contribute lots and lots of content. So on Wikipedia, mostly people who are writing the articles are part of that 1%, and 9% are semi-participatory. Maybe they'll edit an article here and there. But most of us are lurkers. And so if you foreclose, in other words, kind of cut off the traffic to those services by designing your box in a way which only provides a diminutive link to the content creator, then you basically slowly choke off the oxygen to those sites because it, it, it sends them down a death spiral because you have to have kind of more and more users in order to uh, deal with those 1990 dynamics. And I think this is something that really uh, is Google's responsibility to, to address is finding uh, more responsible ways to design answer boxes that, of course, satisfy quick answers that we're looking for uh, while nurturing uh, the open internet. All right. Let me take us out here with a question about the the policy and political environment around the questions of Google and antitrust. We've alluded to the FTC giving Google a very light slap on the wrist in 2011 when these complaints were first brought. Uh, The climate has been very different in the European Union, where there was a $2.4 billion judgment against Google last year around the same sort of questions. Google is now appealing that judgment. Uh, And and of course, the reason we're having you on this week is partly because 60 Minutes uh, did that segment and and brought this back into the national conversation. Um, Google's stock actually dipped in anticipation of the 60-minute segment on Friday, but then I saw it bounce back up on Monday. So maybe investors didn't think that that 60 minutes uh, was that damaging. Um, But then we did hear Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin uh, on Monday making comments about how he thinks it's worth another look at at Google and, and competition issues. Where do you think we are today on this in the United States? And do you think that uh, with a Republican president and, and the current Republican Congress, we, we might get a different result if there were another inquiry into Google and competition than we did back under Obama in 2011? The political climate's really fascinating right now in the United States. Of course, uh, European uh, enforcers have moved forward. And so you have European consumers poised to enjoy better protections than U.S. consumers. I think that's creating a bit of a forcing mechanism on enforcers in the U.S. You mentioned the federal government, but don't forget about the state attorneys general. You know, the Missouri AG Josh Hawley has opened an investigation, an antitrust investigation into Google and pointed at Europe as one of the issues uh, that, that spurred that. There's a couple signals or kind of tea leave reading things I've done that that to me suggest we're in a much different climate than we were uh, during the Obama administration uh, as it relates to antitrust and why I think that 60 Minutes piece was so significant. Uh, number one, when the AT&T Time Warner merger was uh, announced, the the decision by the Trump DOJ to, to block that is a pretty strong signal that that's very unconventional kind of Republican antitrust to, to block such a merger. Uh, number two, 
I think the Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked the day of the $2.7 billion Google fine by Margaret Vestiar in Europe, you know, what do you think? Hey, you got this, you know, America first president that's not afraid to finger wag at any foreign country or government if they feel like they're messing with uh, great American companies. And Google is like literally the most popular consumer company <laughs> in the world. Uh, and they just got fined $2.7 billion. What, what does the president think about that? And Sarah Huckabee Sanders's response was something like, you know, we're not going to comment on this private company matter. And if you think, if you rewinded a year and you thought about how the Obama administration would have reacted to the same question, I mean, uh, President Obama told Kara Swisher, he called called all this stuff protectionism. They they would have had the USTR, John Kerry, maybe the president himself lined up to just finger wag uh, at Europe uh, based on that enforcement action. So the climate's really interesting. And then the final thing, the third uh, thing I'd say is Ted Cruz asked... Uh, Joe Simons, who was is the new future, or not the future, the, the current FTC chairman uh, during his confirmation hearing, what do you think about all this concentration in the tech industry? Effectively, it was his questions. And Simons responded by saying, people ask, why, ask Jesse James why he used to rob banks, and he would joke, well, because that's where the money is. And I think we've got to go kind of look at these areas of concentration. So, uh, you know, I think he could have said anything. Uh, he could have said, you know, we, we, Senator, we are obviously looking at the full economy. He could have had a much safer uh, response to that question, but he sort of leaned into it. And uh, Senator Hatch uh, at an event last Monday uh, remarked at how excited he was by the uh, remarks of Simons. So you have to be a real antitrust nerd <laughs> following it super closely to catch these signals. But uh, I think it is, the, the tide is turning a little bit here. All right, Luther Lowe, thanks so much for joining us. I should say you did correct me. It's it was a 2.4 billion euro judgment against Google in the EU. Um, that's more like 2.8 billion dollars right now. Uh, Luther, thanks again for for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so usually this is the part of the show where we would do don't close my tabs, but we're about to get kicked out of our studio because a a famous band is going to be recording in here. So we're going to hustle it's out. It's Journey. Of here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if we were allowed to say that. Oh, I think we can. <laughs> All right. So we're, we're, we're going to come back with Don't Close My Tabs next week, and we will make it twice as good to make up for not having it this week. Yeah, we record uh, at least here in Berkeley at Fantasy Studios, which is a historic uh, recording studio where all kinds of uh, massively impressive folks uh, have and still continue to record, uh, like Journey, <laughs> uh, but, but, but you know, more importantly, Bill Evans, the jazz pianist, and uh, so many others. Don't get caught messing with Bill Evans' piano. <laughs> I won't. Uh, but that is our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. We've been getting lots of your emails and really appreciate the feedback. Keep sending us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. Yeah, really interesting one from Texas this week. Thanks for that. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will or Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Luther Low. You can find him on Twitter at Luther Low. And if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes, we'd be forever grateful. Actually, if you give us the stars, I'll be grateful for quite a while. If you leave the review as well, I'll be forever grateful. Uh, it really does help boost our show and let more listeners find out about us. Thanks. Give us stars, please. Um, if Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. 
Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. We will see y'all next week. Don't stop believing. (laughs) 